I'm Brian Walsh, and from Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. This is the seventh and final episode in a special series produced in collaboration with the Midiar Network called Beyond Tradeoffs, investing across the returns continuum. The role of an impact investor is taking a step back and saying, what's the thing you're trying to accomplish and what's the best way to scale that impact? And sometimes it's through market rate investing. And sometimes it absolutely is not. That's Liesl Pritzker-Simmons, co-founder and principal at Blue Haven Initiative. Liesl spoke with Impact Alpha editor David Bank about the role that the nearly $1.7 trillion in assets held by family offices can play in the impact ecosystem. Let's jump right into their conversation now. Hi, I'm David Bank, and I'm here with Liesl Pritzker-Simmons of the Blue Haven Initiative coming to us from her office in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hi, Liesl. Hi, David. Thanks for joining us. We're going to get into all of the work of Blue Haven and your thoughts on impact investing. Um, This comes off, as you know, uh, uh, an essay you wrote in a series uh, that was called Beyond Trade-Offs. And so I want to just put to you, as I've put to our other guests in this series, What is Beyond Trade-Offs? So to me, Beyond Trade-Offs is referring to a whole host of investments that don't fit traditional benchmarks. Terrific. Um, (laughs) We're going to unpack that and we're going to get into those kinds of investments and those traditional benchmarks. But let's first just set the stage of who you are and, and, and in the context of this series, what kind of investor you are. So you have a family office, Blue Haven Initiative. Um, it's like many other family offices, a single family office, I believe? Yes. Okay. Um, there are also multifamily offices. Together, uh, family offices have about $1.7 trillion of assets under management just in the U.S. Um, so just tell us about your family office and how it works. Sure. Um, So Blue Haven, as you said, is the single family office of me and my husband, Ian Simmons. And starting about eight or nine years ago, decided that we wanted to look at the impact of all of the investments in our family office. So really all of our assets, not foundation assets, not sort of a carve out, but really everything that we have jurisdiction over. And we wanted to look across our asset classes and try to find managers and companies that really reflected our values and had demonstrable social and environmental impact. Um, So I can get into that um, in the market rate portfolio, as well as the sort of off-market portfolio or beyond-market portfolio. We also um, have a sizable philanthropic portfolio that kind of weaves in through our investment work as well. But one of the things that's interesting about us and even sets us apart from other family offices is um, when I say family, I mean me and Ian. And so we are not representing other Pritzkers or other Simmons. It's really just the two of us. I was going to ask about that. There are other Pritzker family offices. Obviously, there are many other Pritzkers. Uh, and, you, and we're talking about just the wealth, and just to be clear about it, the inherited wealth in, in large part, I imagine, um, that, that came to you. And, and, uh, and, and you guys are managing that now, as you say, with this whole portfolio 
What, how do you, what, what's the word you use for how you manage? Is it, is it towards impact or is it something? Uh, yeah, we've toyed around with various ways to describe it. So we say, um, you know, sort of for profit, but with purpose. Um, really what it comes down to and the way that we think about impact investing is that it's just more informed investing. We, as you mentioned, um, we are inheritors. I did not make the money that I'm managing. Um, and I know that, but I take the responsibility of stewarding those assets pretty seriously. And so I damn well better know what that money's doing um, and make sure that it's having as, as much of a positive impact on the world um, as I pass it along to my children, both philanthropically and through our investment portfolio. Um, so I take that stewardship role pretty seriously. Just to, um, and that's why I really want to know what's going on. A- absolutely. And just to just to dig in, just so that people know how these, you know, how these family offices work. I mean, you you are the co-founder and and, and just to be, again, uh, clear, it's your it's your money. But there's a whole staff there, right? There's a whole like it, it, it feels like an investment house uh, with a whole investment team, right? We do. Yeah. So we, we actually have a staff of 12 now and it's kind of um, uh, evenly divided into thirds between administrative investment and uh, philanthropy. Um, and we all sit in the same office, except for Lauren, who is our managing director of ventures, who is mostly on an airplane. So you have a venture portfolio that is early stage venture, but it, this one has a particular focus. And as you said, Lauren is often on a plane, but I think she's actually based in Nairobi, if I'm not mistaken. Is that, is that So right? she spends about half of her time in Nairobi. Um, and, 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 and that's because Africa and particularly energy access is a key focus of that of that part of the portfolio? Yes. So one of the things that we did um, about five years ago, well, even a little bit before that, um, was we took $50 million out of our private equity allocation, and we decided to build in-house a direct investment portfolio, which is our uh, part of our venture capital portfolio. We also invest in VC funds, but this $50 million evergreen fund is managed in-house by Lauren, and that has a very discreet focus on energy access, um, financial technology, and logistics in sub-Saharan Africa. I want to dig in deep on that, on the strategy itself, but I want to just first just sort of lay the groundwork around this sort of portfolio approach across asset classes so that people... Uh, I, I, I think that sometimes the direct and the, and the venture stuff um, is is the sexier uh, investments and so gets more attention. But I just want to make clear that, that we're talking about across the whole set of public equity funds, fixed income, as you said, private equity, but also real assets and, and other things. And you're aiming for what are called market rate risk adjust, risk adjusted market rate returns across all of those and, and actually including the venture portfolio is that not right? that's right so for the majority of our investment portfolio and all those asset classes that you mentioned um our mandate is to make market rate returns commensurate with the you know risk return profiles for each of those asset classes um, so we invest in public equity, both both passive and active um, funds, fixed income, because we're a taxable portfolio. We are not a foundation. We have a pretty high allocation to munis, for example. And then through real assets, uh, we have a pretty high private credit uh, allocation as well, because we like the yield component of some of those. Um, and then also private equity. And with that, we work with the imprint team at Goldman Sachs to help us with fund manager selection across that portfolio. Um, and that is seeking, you know, risk-adjusted returns. 
that that whole notion of risk-adjusted returns, though, is a little bit up for grabs, partly because um, people talk about market rate. What What is market rate? Obviously, there's benchmarks for this, and, and, and folks have figured out what market rate is. But market rate, in some sense, without taking into account impact, is may not may or may not be the right comparison. But I think the bigger issue is the risk-adjusted part of it. So you're you're you may have some sense of what the risks are. I mean, you, you you've talked about climate change and financial inclusion. You you might have a different sense of what risks are than some other investors. How, how do you think about risk-adjusted market rate? Well, I mean, that's one of the things that we actually look for in our manager selection is for, I mean, for example, and we saw this actually work um, in Q4 of 2018, which, which as you know, was pretty devastating. Um, we like managers, particularly in, say, in the public equity portfolio, that look at ESG components and their stock picking as a way to mitigate risk and volatility. And when we, we saw that, we saw that actually at work. And so our public equity portfolio was down a lot less than our benchmarks were for that quarter. And we think it's due to the def, sort of the defensive nature of, of sort of value ESG stocks. Just for the listener, odd listener who doesn't by now know what ESG stands for, it's environmental, social, and, and governance factors. And and and, that, and that's a that's an interesting uh, data point right there. So that was bearing out the thesis that 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 ESG as risk mitigation um, might have some legs, particularly in the in the environments we're moving into in in the in the markets. But I also think that um you know, that's where some of the opportunities lie in impact investing and why that's, again, why we think of it as more informed investing is the managers that we want to work with have a different way to think about risk than traditional managers and a different way to think about opportunities and returns. I mean, we see it in our muni portfolio as well of, you know, if if you're looking at at a municipality that has sort of a, a very low um, rating or grade, um, if you've got a manager that's able to really look under the hood and say, well, hang on a minute, you know, why is this the case that this, you know, part of Michigan was rated this way? I actually don't think it's that risky. And that's where we're going to make our yield there is because we think the risk has been mispriced. And so you can use, we think looking at ESG is a really interesting way, um, to assess that. And in our market rate portfolio, that's what we're looking for is areas where because of ESG or because of the impact focus, we think that there's an opportunity for outperformance. Not that that happens all the time, but it's actually the nature of the investment and the impact of that investment is what's going to lead to the outsized return. And that is not true in every single case. And that's why there are, you know, large sort of sectors that we do not invest in in our market rate portfolio. I, I can't resist the the easy layup here, which is, um, what would you call that uh, that effect when the impact thesis itself uh, helps <laughs> deliver the outperformance? <laughs> uh, well, I've got impact alpha, obviously. <laughs> Um. <laughs> ding, ding, ding for for our podcast drinking game players. <laughs> exactly, but but um, I also uh, what I what I just also want to be super clear about is we don't think that impact investing always across the bar is going to deliver market rate or you know perform better than markets will. I what I really think is the role of an impact investor is taking a step back and saying what's the thing you're trying to accomplish and what's the best way to scale that impact? And sometimes it's through market rate investing. 
And sometimes it absolutely is not. Well, let me just press you on that because I think most of the market rate uh, sectors, I think with the exception of the venture fund uh, uh, it, that we're going to get to, but most of it is fairly agnostic as to the the theme or the sector. I mean, you're looking for these kind of impact advantages, as you say, but not necessarily ag uh, against a particular challenge or problem. That's right. We did that by design, actually, um, because what we wanted to say is let's we have this thesis that certain kinds of investments lend themselves better to market rate investing and our mandate is to fill a market rate portfolio. So let's see what the managers come back with instead of us saying that it can only be, you know, targeting early childhood education for, you know, girls with Down syndrome in this particular district in Kentucky. Um, let's actually see what the market sends back to us. And so what we've seen is that there are interesting opportunities that overlay impact and investment strategy, particularly in energy and particularly in financial services, where we think we actually can get the bottom lines on the impact side, as well as on the financial side that we're interested in. And then there are other sectors where we really haven't seen that as much, but we didn't want to handcuff ourselves going in when we started to build this portfolio. Not every impact area is investable in a market rate way. Indeed. So it's interesting. You're saying the market rate focus itself led you to financial inclusion and, and, and climate change rather than the other way around. Yes, it really did. And so we've started looking at things, you know, we've, we've been looking for forever for, um, you know, things in education, but everything that we come up that we find that has the impact return that we really like isn't really market rate. And things that we find that are market rate, we don't think really heavy impact return we're looking for. So there are some sectors where we really do see those kinds of trade-offs and that's fine. We just aren't going to try to crowbar them into our market rate portfolio. Gotcha. Well, let's come back to, to, to what you do in those cases. Um, but I do want to dig in on the, on, the, on the energy access in Africa example, which I think is fascinating because you've made enough investments there now, I think, to understand kind of the landscape of the marketplace and sort of what it needs. And some of them, have, as you said, have been direct investments in particular ventures. Some of them have been funds and some of them have been actually grants and, and other sorts of blended finance sort of mechanisms where the market's not ready. So first of all, how, why, why energy access in Africa? Well, um, our original thesis around this which has been, I mean, really, we, we, we built on a lot of the research and work that many development agencies have been doing for quite some time around really at the core of any kind of economic development at scale is, um, is access to cheap and reliable energy. And that's whether at the household level, whether at the commercial and industrial level and beyond, access to cheap and reliable energy has underpinned all industrial um, economies um, sort of going back a long time. And so um, if we really care about ec economic development in this region and we are not addressing energy use, then we're not really thinking um, about the root cause of what actually builds an economy up and builds a middle class. So that was part of the reason that we started there um, was just the deep impact that really affects all sectors. It affects health outcomes. It affects access to education. It affects access to markets from a macro standpoint. Um, but then when we started to look at 
And back to our point of view as a single family office and the kind of capital that we can deploy, we thought, you know what, it doesn't really make sense for us to you know, try to compete with the World Bank on massive hydropower, you know, projects. Um, we don't know how to build wind farms or do, you know, like that, that's not kind of our area of expertise or where we think we could really be additive. But the kind of capital we have, it's flexible, um, it's nimble. We have uh, the ability to talk to other flexible capital providers as well. And so that was part of what brought us to the sort of pay-as-you-go space and other kinds of energy access as well. And so um, that was kind so of- So you made a couple a couple direct um, co- uh, venture investments in, in, in things like MCOPA and PEG Africa, that as you say, are pay-as-you-go, mm-hmm. uh, which has you know, obviously been um, attracting- a uh, reasonable, you know, maybe not quite enough, but but at least very much increasing amounts of, of, of investment capital. Mm-hmm. But then you you looked into microgrids, which um, or mini grids, which uh, which which I think holds some some great promise. But but you found maybe not quite as marketplace, not quite as developed. Though. Right. So Power Africa is one initiative, and 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 there's many others as well that have done these kind of these really great roadmaps and looking at um, the entire kind of energy ecosystem in sub-Saharan Africa and sort of what are the bits and pieces that need to be in play to get to that sort of cheap, reliable energy access for everybody. And solar home systems and pay-as-you-go solar is certainly a piece of that. But really, wouldn't it be great if we had, you know, really large centralized grids as well? That's another piece of that, you know, which we have here in the US and much of Europe has as well. But that requires a huge amount of government subsidy, which sub-Saharan Africa does not have the tax base for the most part to, to pay for. So in the absence of a large centralized grid, but where the grid sometimes does operate, there's sort of this this middle piece here where you've got mini grids, micro grids, community solar projects, these these sorts of I mean, and then there's dams and all, all of that as well. But there's a whole ecosystem um, that sort of needs to be working and at play in order to get to that sort of cheap, reliable energy. Um, and so we started down at sort of the the customer level, at the solar home system level, and as we started looking up that value chain to, okay, well, what about businesses? And and we made an investment into cross-boundary energy that does commercial and industrial uh, solar design and um, and financing. And then there's also sort of these, these different mini-grid developers, um, which we were really interested in because you can get the per kilowatt hour cost down much further than you can with a solar home system. However, mm-hmm. um, there are still a lot of questions around implementing these mini grids um, and how they are um, how they are going to get financed and what role the government is going to play in rolling out some of these projects as well. And so for us, when we looked at investing equity into some of these companies, we weren't quite comfortable with the riskiness of this yet. And we just weren't sure how it was going to go. And so our thought was, well, we, we, it doesn't feel quite right. It doesn't pass our screen in the market rate portfolio because of the risk associated with it and there, therefore how we see the returns. However, we think that this is a really important thing to help prove out. It's not quite investable yet, but we think it could be and we desperately want it to be. Um, so 
luckily as a family office, we have the flexibility to say, okay, well, it doesn't fit in that bucket. So why don't we think about it over in our grant portfolio? Why don't we think about it and supporting this with a different kind of capital that has a different kind of risk return profile associated with it? So we supported a project um, that's being administered by PowerGen in Tanzania, which is a leading mini grid developer to do exactly that, to prove out a lower cost of connection at scale um, that hopefully will unlock a whole other sort of category of funding for them to continue to grow. And so that's one of the ways that, at least in energy access, we've, we've used different kinds of capital uh, with different kinds of projects at different stages of maturity. So that's fascinating. So, so if you actually took across the, I mean, you, you talked about yourself as a risk-adjusted market rate of returns kind of investor, but if you actually added in all the other kinds of capital that you have at, that is not targeted at that, then the portfolio across the whole spectrum ranges all the way across the return spectrum. That's right. So we are very comfortable with, you know, quote unquote, concessionary returns, as long as they are in a delineated part of our portfolio. And we all know why they're there and what they're designed to do. And what can be a little bit tricky is, you know, when is it a good concessionary return or just a bad investment? <laughs> um, and that's one that's one place where we've put in a number of kind of screens ourselves to try to get at the root of that and when and why we will make a concessionary investment. We also want to be clear, you know, from just a branding standpoint as well. You know, the majority of our assets are looking for market rate investments. And so we don't want to confuse some of our investees. Um, you know, why do they get to have no return and we need to have a market rate return? <laughs> and so um, we've also grappled with that as well of, um, you know, trying not to be a slave to all masters, um, but being clear about why we think this intervention should be aligned with this kind of risk return profile. And and also just to be clear, you can, you know, you said the distinction between a concessionary investment and a bad investment, that could also go for actually a market rate investment too. You could have a bad, you could have a bad investment up, over there as well. Oh, um, well, I mean, that's so. the thing is that, I mean, you know, not to, not to get too, you know, bent out of shape on terms, but like, you know, a market rate investment in Q4 of 2018 was pretty lousy. So, you know, I don't know if you want to really shoot for that, but <laughs> so. So more, this gets back to your more, more informed, more informed investing and, uh, and, and investing that delivers the, the value actually that you're looking for, depending on, you know, what kind of investment it is, I, I guess. Is what... Yeah. And, and also acknowledging, as I said in the beginning, to me, this beyond trade-offs framing, um, is really about acknowledging that there are some investments that do not have an appropriate benchmark to even call them concessionary or market rate. So one example would be we're invested in a pay for success uh, note that social finance designed um, here in Massachusetts. And it's around workforce readiness and placement for new immigrants in Massachusetts to learn sort of English language skills that pertain to their jobs um, that help them get placed and, and sort of help their income levels. And so it's, you know, it's a pay for success note. So it has, um, you know, sort of a one to 2% return. Now, this intervention is being administered, the nonprofit with the intervention is Jewish Vocational Services. 
Now, is a one to two percent return concessionary? Um, I don't know. It depends on what you're comparing it to. I think the right thing to compare it to would be a grant to JVS, to Jewish Vocational Services. In that case, we're looking at a one to two percent return against a hundred percent loss. I would not say that is concessionary at all. Now, if you a hundred and one percent delta, exactly, I would say. So, to me, that's the appropriate benchmark for that intervention, not some muni bond or not some, you know, not an investment in Facebook. Like, so, I think we have to get honest about what is the real benchmark that you want to use for a certain when you're making decisions. And so to me, saying that's concessionary is is insane. Ah, so now we've come back to the beginning and then maybe this is a good place to leave it. You've said beyond trade-offs is getting honest about the real benchmarks to use. Exactly. Uh, for, for the investments. Well, thank you, Liesl Pritzker-Simmons. This is a pleasure as always. And uh, thanks for being with us. Thank you. That's going to do it for this episode in Returns on Investments special series, Beyond Trade-offs. Find out more at impactalpha.com and on Twitter at impactalpha. We'll continue the conversation on the Beyond Trade-Offs channel on Impact Alpha's subscribers-only Slack channel. This podcast has been a production of Impact Alpha in collaboration with Omidyar Network. Special thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh, head of Impact for the fintech company Liquinet. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you in some sense of the word next time.